My name is Kate Middleton, but I am actually I'm a psychologist, but I also work in a church um, just up the road um, in Hitchin in Hertfordshire. I'm also the director of a national organization called Mind and Soul, and we are really passionate about encouraging the church to engage with issues all to do with emotional and mental health. And so that's not just waiting until there's a problem. That's as much about how we can keep our emotional and mental health good, how we can keep fueling ourselves to stay healthy, to reach our full potential to get the best out of our bodies and our brains. So that's what we're excited about. If you want to check us out, we are Mind and Soul Foundation, all as one word, dot org. But tonight I want to talk to you about sleep. And this is one of a series of sessions that I teach where we're looking at what are the common issues that we struggle with in the 21st century as we're trying to negotiate life and all the challenges of work and, and family and all the other things we've got going on. What are some of the things that can limit us, that can limit our potential that might even push us into a place where we become unwell emotionally or physically and sleep is an increasingly common thing for people to come and talk to me about how do I get decent sleep I'm just so tired all the time what do I do if I can't get to sleep how do I manage this so I'm going to talk to you about this this topic of sleep this evening and I'm going to take you through a few different sections of things that I want to tell you about and the first one is just to think about why does sleep matter because it does because sleep if we're honest is something that a lot of us would like to be able to do without who's ever heard someone say oh sleep's for wimps you know a bit of a joke yeah and you know we've all heard people say people who probably aren't friends of ours anymore if they were before say oh yes I can manage absolutely fine on three to four hours a day you're like oh yeah I've been managing on three to four hours a day but I'm not managing well at all but there are people who will say that. And you'll read, if you read reports, you'll, we've probably all read them in the papers of so-and-so latest amazing entrepreneur, millionaire, billionaire, whatever, who will talk about how they get up at 4.30 so that they've cleared their entire inbox by five. Um, and, and it's all fine and works very well for them. But the truth actually is that sleep does matter. It's very important. And all of the stuff that you might have read saying, well, you can train yourself to need sleep less, is on the whole not balanced by good research. Actually, all the research shows that sleep really is important, that it is something that you need to, to, to maintain to keep your physical and emotional health well. So I want to tell you about five things, five reasons why sleep really does matter, first of all, just to, just to set the scene. So what happens when you are struggling because you haven't had enough sleep. Here's number one. First of all, your brain becomes very inefficient. In order to work at its maximum efficiency, your brain needs to be well rested. So we've all had days when you feel like you're thinking through a cloud of smoke or treacle or something, or you just keep saying or doing stupid things. You can't think clearly. You know when you look for something in your mind and you know that you know it, but it's just like the information is not there. All you can see is just empty space or maybe a, a fly buzzing around in your mind. That's what happens when we become tired because your brain just becomes inefficient. So all of the main things that your brain does, particularly the ones that require it to balance lots of different skills from different parts of your brain, things like attention, planning, motivation, all of those cognitive skills. If I talk about cognitive skills, I'm talking about things your brain does. All of those cognitive skills you'll get worse at when you're tired. So particularly if they were things that you weren't great at in the first place, you'll become really bad at them if you're tired. So that's number one. The second is to do with memory. Now, all of us, especially those of us over a certain age, will probably remember what it was like to have good memory if it wasn't that your memory was so bad that you can't remember what it was like to have good memory. But your memory will get worse the more tired you get. And we're talking short-term and long-term memory. And the more tired you get, the harder it is. So short-term memory is the memory that you use to remember things, as it says, just in the short term. So if you're popping into the supermarket and you've got five things to buy um, and you're trying to remember what they are, if someone tells you their phone number. And some of you will know that when you're really tired, your short-term memory just deserts you. So I remember when, um, when both my kids were born, but my, I have a son who's six, so he's the one I remember most clearly because it was the most recent. Um, and when I, I remember going to the supermarket and having to buy three things and literally having to walk around going, bread, milk, sugar, bread, milk, sugar. Because if I didn't keep saying it, I would forget why I was there or possibly who I was or possibly everything about that, what had happened that day. So 
So your short-term memory becomes much less efficient, much harder to remember stuff. So does your long-term memory, your ability to recall things that have happened longer ago. And what's interesting about your long-term memory is that we know that when it gets less efficient, it becomes very biased. So you're much more likely to remember certain things than you are other things. And the things you're more likely to remember are things which happened when you, your state matched the way you are then. So if you're tired, interesting fact for the evening, you are much more likely to remember other times you felt really, really knackered. So what does that do to you when you are feeling really knackered? Well, it's really depressing because suddenly it feels like your whole life you feel this knackered. And it might not be. It probably isn't as bad as it feels because what's happening is your long-term memory has become less efficient. You are just remembering all the other times you felt that awful and it feels like that's your whole life. So your long-term memory becomes less efficient. Also, if your tiredness has had other impacts on you, maybe you're feeling more anxious or more depressed or something like that, the same thing happens. You'll be much more likely to remember times in your life when you felt the same way. So your memory plays tricks on you that can have a further impact on how you're feeling in that moment. Number three is about habit and routine. Now, honestly, answer this question honestly or just don't answer at all. How many of you driving here tonight got here and then couldn't remember some of the journey? Maybe don't answer that, actually. It might alarm the people you gave a lift to. But we all have a tendency when we're driving to slip into routine. You have a part of your brain that is all about procedure, anything that's automatic, because it saves your brain energy to just slip into a routine. And you'll do it much more the more tired that you are. And driving is a classic one. So driving to work, driving to school. If you've got kids at school, you do a drop-off every day. Driving to church or places that you go regularly. All of those are things when you might do that even on a good day. But when you're tired, you become much more likely to do it. So next time you're in the car and you do that thing where you're driving and you suddenly sort of come to it and you think, where am I going? Where is this? Am, am I going to work? Where, 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 where was I supposed to be doing? You could think, well, is this something to do with how tired I am? And of course, the risk is, is that then you're more likely to make errors because you're not concentrating entirely on what it is you're doing. So habits and routines are much more likely to take over when you're tired. The fourth is something to do with our perception of risk and our impulse control. So when you're trying to make a decision about what to do or a choice, there are quite well-tuned systems in your brain that control how you do that, that make sure that you make the decision fairly well, that you are not either too impulsive or utterly incapable of making the most simple decisions. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm not so sure I'm very good at that. But what happens when you're tired is that your ability to do that becomes worse. So the risk can go either way. Either you become more impulsive and you might make decisions just to go with stuff because you just can't be bothered to think about it, in effect, or you become completely and utterly indecisive. So if someone says, do you want tea or coffee? I mean, that decision's going to floor you for at least half an hour. <laughs> so your risk perception becomes unreliable. Of course, within that, your ability to perceive the risks of, and the of potential outcomes of a decision you make also becomes less reliable. So we know, for example, there are studies where they get groups of people and then they don't let them sleep and then they get them to do sort of tasks where they have to gamble or they have to make decisions about things like that. And we know that they are not as good at judging risk when they're tired. So in everyday life, what that means is that you might make rash decisions and you might not be so good at thinking through the consequences of the decisions that you're making. And then finally, number five, if you're really tired, is that your perception of the world around you starts to get a little bit skewed. So most of us have probably, I think, particularly if you've had children or if you work shifts or if you have, you know, busy job, have those moments where you start to feel a bit like, whoa, is this room moving or am I just really tired? Yeah. So that's the low end of this. As you get further up, you can get to the point where even hallucinations, so even things like thinking you've heard voices or things like that become much more common. And particularly if that's something that you struggle with anyway for whatever reason, then again, the more sleep deprived you are, the more it's uh, a likely risk for you. And literally what's happening then is that your sleep brain and your dreaming brain, the drive to get into a dreaming state has become so strong it's starting to impede on your waking life. 
So it's definitely something to watch out for um, if that's something that you know is an issue for you. If mood balance is something that you know you struggle with, we know that lack of sleep makes that much harder for people. We know, in fact, that, that for most people, if, if you're struggling with what life is throwing at you now, because sometimes life does just throw things at us, if you then also get very tired, you're, you're going to find whatever those struggles are much harder to manage well. So we know that sleep is really important. So what is the point of it? What is actually the point of sleep? We know that it has all those negative impacts if you don't do it. But what do we know about the point of sleep? And, and I've got another five things to tell you about that are the functions of sleep. We think, I might throw out there that sleep is one of those really fascinating subjects where experts from all kinds of different fields are researching it. So you've got sort of neurologists, psychologists, medics, all sorts of people looking at sleep. And still all kinds of different theories about what the point is. And if we got some people from those expertises in this room now, they would probably argue for the rest of the evening about what the purpose of sleep was. So I'm going to tell you some of the things that we know about sleep, but don't take this as like absolutely definitive because the truth is the brain is so amazing that we actually don't fully understand quite a lot of it yet, and sleep would be one of those things. What we do know, number one, is that sleep is vital for life. <coughs> so lack of sleep actually brings with it a danger of death, not just because you crashed the car because you weren't thinking about where you were going, but we know that sleep deprivation ultimately can lead to death. And in fact, this is so true that the Guinness Book of World Records no longer allows people to go for the world record in staying awake. They used to, uh, pub quiz uh, fanatics, if you're interested, the record is from 1964, somebody with the surname Gardner who stayed awake for 264.4 hours, which is 11 days, 25 minutes. <laughs> so if anybody feels that they're beating that at the moment, then um, go and see your GP. Anyway, but so you're not allowed to do that record anymore because there were students everywhere trying to do it because students just do that sort of thing. And actually, it's dangerous. It's risky. Interestingly, there is some fairly recent research trying to understand why that is that, that is just fascinating that shows that you have, um, you have sort of spaces in your brain where cerebrospinal fluid, it's the fluid that bathes your brain, circulates. It's a bit like a circulatory system within your brain. And there was some amazing research recently that showed that when we sleep, those spaces open up a bit more. So the fluid circulates better. And what we know is that that fluid is involved in flushing out toxins and waste products and stuff from your brain. Toxins that we know are linked with things like the risk of developing Alzheimer's and dementia and all kinds of interesting other things that, that we're aware of. So we don't know for sure, but we suspect that something very significant is going on when you sleep. And that's why, ultimately, if you just don't sleep at all, that's why the impact is so serious. So number two, then, in terms of what sleep is useful, and it is about refueling. Sleep is an incredibly important time for so many systems in your body to refuel, to reset, to drop back down to that baseline sort of housekeeping level. And part of doing that is what enables those systems to work really well. So we're talking about things like all of the systems involved with stress, so all of the hormones and systems that are involved with stress. We're talking about things like your immune system, all of the big systems in your body basically have a, a natural pattern that follows your sleep-wake cycle. And if you're not sleeping well, what you're doing is you're not enabling those systems to drop back down to baseline. And the risk then is that you end up existing on a sort of chronically raised level on those things. And your body just isn't designed to do that long term. So if we think about something like stress, Stress is a response to things that life is throwing at you, but it's felt in your body in a very real way. It's linked to the levels of certain hormones that are circulating around your body, the level of activation in certain parts of your brain. And your body and brain are not designed to be continually switched on. They are designed to have periods of time when all of those things can drop back down to normal. So we know that if people aren't sleeping well, some of the things that are affected by that stress system, like blood pressure, for example, are much more likely to become chronically raised because you're not having that natural drop at night. 
So we know that sleep is really, really important to refuel some of those things. And again, I would say to you, you know, it's really difficult because um, typical laws apply. The time in your life when you're most busy and you could most do with sleeping really efficiently will be the time in life when you suddenly cannot sleep. It's just the way it goes because your brain is buzzing and your stress level is high. But those are the times when developing a really good sleep pattern can really pay off because that's when you really need that time to help your brain and body manage the stress that you're under day to day. We will talk about some tips for good sleep later on. Okay, number three in what's going on when we sleep is something to do with how your brain consolidates information and memories and things that have happened to you during the day. So there's good evidence that there is something that goes on when you sleep that is to do with laying down your experiences from the day into some kind of long-term memory, a bit like putting books back on the shelf at a library. So it's to do with how your brain carries and holds information. Similarly linked to that, there is another one, which another piece of information which we know, which is sort of number four, which is about how your brain learns and we know that sleep is involved in learning we know that there is something significant that goes on within sleep particularly when you're learning that is to do with that consolidation of information so if we study the sleep patterns of students for example and we look at them when they're studying for exams and then we look at them afterwards when they're just chilling out and doing very little we see that they experience a lot more of one type of sleep called REM sleep which is your dream sleep when they're studying so there is a theory that something is going on there to do with how you consolidate information and learn. And again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the key times in life when you're perhaps most likely to not sleep as well or to push the limits, let's stay up and you know, pull an all-nighter and work extra hard, is actually the time when a really good night's sleep could be significant, could be important. And so number five on what sleep is for is just worth a mention about how your sleep need varies through life because we know that sleep is particularly important for children and teenagers because it's involved with growth and development. So we know that, we, that, that, kids, that kids grow more at night, that your body is involved in some of those processes in the time when you're asleep. Other things aren't going on and it enables, therefore, some of the housekeeping tasks involved in growth and development to happen more efficiently. We know that kids in particular benefit from good sleep patterns. We know that poor sleep in younger children in particular is linked with behavioural problems with increased risk of some um, additional needs. Although it's very difficult to do a chicken and egg there, of course, because some additional needs mean that kids really struggle to sleep well and switch off. But we know that the more we can teach our kids good sleep patterns, the better for them. And again, isn't that an awkward thing? Because there are a few things more difficult as a parent than teaching your kids how to flip and go to sleep. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody's encountered one of those children who just doesn't seem to need to sleep ever. But it's not easy. But there's a value to teaching your kids really good patterns and behaviours to do with sleep. And we might talk a bit more about that later. So with all of that going on, how do you know, therefore, how much sleep you actually need? Because you've read the thing that says that Maggie Thatcher managed on three hours. And then you've read the other thing that says that the average adult should have nine to ten. And how do you know how much you actually need? I've got a little video. Are we ready to cue? Let's, let's just watch this little video and um, give you a rest from my voice. And it tells you a little bit more about how much sleep you need. Tired? We all know the feeling. Irritable, groggy, and exceptionally lazy. Chances are you didn't sleep enough last night or the past few nights. But what exactly is enough sleep? And more importantly, can you ever catch up on it? While the very function of sleep is still debated by scientists, we do know that it's necessary to function efficiently and productively. After all, we spend 24 years of our lifetime sleeping, it had better be important. Researchers have tested how much is required each night by assigning groups of people to 4, 6, and 8 hours of sleep over extended periods of time. After 14 days, those with 8 hours of sleep exhibited few attention lapses or cognitive issues. However, those with 6 or 4 hours of sleep showed a steady decline. In fact, after only 2 weeks, the 6 hour group showed a similar reaction time to a person with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.1%, which is considered legally drunk. The four-hour sleepers suffered even more, occasionally falling asleep during their cognitive tests. In both groups, brain function decreased day by day almost linearly with no sign of leveling off. Scientists have dubbed this cumulative effect as sleep debt. 
So can we recover from it? After a night or two of little sleep, studies show that the body and brain can fully recover with a few nights of good sleep. However, with long-term sleep deprivation on the scale of weeks to months, the recovery of cognitive function is much slower, requiring many more nights of quality sleep. On the timescale of months to years, it's unknown whether brain function can be fully repaired or if it causes permanent damage. Paradoxically, with chronic sleep deprivation, your sleepiness or how tired you feel does eventually level off, meaning that you become less and less aware of your objective impairment over time. So how long should you sleep? Most studies tend to show that 7-8 to eight hours of sleep is the average ideal for humans. Apart from the cognitive issues, individuals who consistently sleep less than 7 hours a night have an increased risk of heart disease, obesity, and diabetes, not to mention a 12% higher risk of death. On the flip side, studies have shown that while sleeping more than 8 hours does not impair brain function, it also carries an increased risk of heart disease, obesity, and diabetes, and a 30% increased risk of mortality. So too much sleep may also be a bad thing. But variation most certainly exists, and our genetics play a large role. In fact, individuals genuinely unaffected by only 6 hours of sleep were found to have a mutation of a specific gene. When scientists genetically engineered mice to express this gene, they were able to stay awake for an extra 1.2 hours than normal mice. It turns out these short sleepers have more biologically intense sleep sessions than the average person. Ultimately, while it's important to know the ideal average of 7-8 to eight hours exists, let your body and brain help you figure out its own needs. After all, no one shoe size fits all. If you want to know how to get better quality sleep each night in order to conquer the hurdles of sleep deprivation, we have some tips and research for you over on ASAP Thought. You can find a link in the description below to that video. Thanks to Audible.com for giving you a free okay, audiobook of your you. choice you can, you at audible.com slash A's. Yeah, interesting. So if you weren't feeling anxious about your sleep, you probably are now, either that you're sleeping too much or too little. I love some of the quotes in that, though. I love, I love that in the studies about sleep, one of the issues is that people fall asleep when they're doing their cognitive tests, which just makes me laugh quite a lot. Um, it's interesting, though, isn't it? And again, I think one of the things that's good coming out of that is, is to think about the variation in sleep. So there are some people who do seem to need less sleep, but actually it's not a huge variation, maybe an hour less at most. And I think probably the, the strongest message in that to me is the one that as you get used to less sleep, you don't feel as sleepy, but actually your brain still isn't functioning at its maximum level. And the strong evidence of studies, I know that it says there cheerfully that we don't know if, if, you're, if it's permanent damage or not, which is very cheery, but actually I would reassure you that all the evidence is that improving your sleep does have a, a, an effect of reversing the impact of that. <clears throat> so I would say to you, if you know you don't sleep that well, either in quality or duration because life is throwing things at you or because sleep is a struggle. It is something that is worth focusing on. It's worth prioritizing. It's worth giving some thought to because the evidence is that if you can improve how you sleep, you will release extra potential in your brain. You'll find things easier. You'll find that your mind functions better and perhaps some of the things you're struggling with are more linked to your sleep than to anything else. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? Looking, thinking about the number of hours that you sleep, something to ponder later. So what are the problems with sleep? Why do we struggle to, 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 with this whole issue of sleep? Because it is hugely common. And basically, there's, particularly for adults thinking about that, there's a whole range of issues around sleep. Problems getting to sleep, problems staying asleep are very common. Um, other things that go on in sleep, like having nightmares, sleepwalking, um, movement in sleep. I don't know if anybody struggles with that. Um, or is, I'm married to uh, someone, my husband is a lawyer. If he's working on a really intense deal, he both talks in his sleep but has been known to act things out. So he did once punch me in the head because he dreamed that he was um, in goal for Norwich and he was saving a goal. And he, he walloped me right in the head, which I was quite excited about in the middle of the night. <coughs> So there are other things sometimes going on in our sleep which is disturbing it. The most common issue with sleep, of course, is things that disturb your sleep. Children, for example, noise, distractions, again, snoring spouses. I don't want to sound like, yeah, yeah, I know. Mostly it's the men keeping the women awake, but I, I, don't, I know some of you it will be the other way around, but snoring is a huge issue. And anything that disturbs your sleep could be noise, light, things like that. I am ironically really quite tired today because, not, not last night, but the night before, did you guys have loads of thunder here or was that just us yet? So, so I spent the night mostly with my six-year-old who was either scared that it was thundering or that it might thunder again 
which was fun. So even when it wasn't thundering, he was up. So things that keep you awake, is that's the most common problem. And sometimes the most effective thing you can do for your sleep is solve something that's totally external to you, but is keeping you awake. Sometimes it is just about prioritizing it and thinking, actually, this is an issue. And we'll talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> So what I want to think about just for the rest of this session before we take a bit of a break and then we'll have some Q&A is what we all really want to know, which is how do you get better sleep? How do you improve your sleep? How do you manage some of the typical problems with sleep? So I'm going to share some tips with you that are gathered from a range of sort of research approaches from, again, medicine, neurology, psychology, all of these sorts of places. So five things that you can do that I advise you might want to think about doing to improve your sleep. Number one, then, is to work with your brain. Now, sleep is actually quite a powerful instinct. I know it doesn't feel like it when you're trying to get to sleep and you know you're really tired and you just can't sleep, which is so annoying. But sleep actually is a very powerful instinct. You know how powerful it is because the next day when you're trying to stay awake... After the night when you couldn't sleep, that's really hard, isn't it? And I'm sure that if you're in circumstances like driving long distances, sitting, listening to talks, long meetings, you will find other times when it feels like it would be really easy to go to sleep. It's just that they're often not uh, when you need to. Now, what you've got hopefully on the screen up there, yeah, is a little bit of a diagram of some of the, 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 the daily patterns in some of your hormones that are involved in sleep. So you've got two hormones on the screen there. You've got cortisol, which is the sort of dark bluish black line, um, and then melatonin, which is the red line. Now, cortisol is a, it's a stress hormone. We talk about it as a stress hormone. It's powerfully involved in your sleep-wake cycle. So cortisol peaks at the time of day that you would normally be getting up or about to get up. It's about preparing you to feel more alert, ready for the day. Um, it's, it's about kicking your brain and your body into action and getting ready for the day after a long night's sleep. Melatonin, on the other hand, is a hormone that has lots of different impacts, but one of the things it does is it makes you feel nice and drowsy. So you'll see melatonin peak just at the time you would normally go to bed. And hopefully it prepares you feeling nice and snoozy and you're ready to go off and have a sleep. Now, obviously, these hormones work best, therefore, if you are keeping relatively consistent hours. That's why if you have to get up really early to catch a plane or to get, go to a meeting or something like that, you feel so groggy. Or if your kids do wake you up in the middle of the night because your cortisol hasn't had its normal daytime peak. So your brain and your body just aren't prepped to get ready. So the more you can keep consistent hours, the better. This is why you hear the advice that says if you're struggling with sleep, don't lay in at weekends, which feels so crazy, doesn't it? You just think, well, this is, this is what I've got to do. I've got to catch up on some sleep. So Saturday, I'm going to sleep right through till lunch if I can. But if you do that, the risk is, is that you make the problem di more, more difficult because you're breaking up that really powerful natural sleep-wake cycle. Those of you who have um, small babies and who are thinking, I don't think they have one of these... You're partially right. Babies are born without any sleep-wake cycle at all. They are totally random when they're first born. About eight to ten weeks, the cells in their brain that control sleep-wake cycles start to tick. They're amazing cells, very exciting. They, they, literally, they literally tick. It's very, very clever, and they're to do with how our brain keeps time. So from about eight to ten weeks, in theory babies are starting to form this natural sleep-wake cycle. But it's, it's, it's not until they get much older that it's the same adult one where they have just this one sleep at night. Um, as you know, kids nap right through, um, through the early years and sometimes right through to three or four. So it's, it's, and kids do vary in how quickly they do this. But don't, don't, even, don't even try worrying about it until they're about eight to ten weeks old because they just don't have one. From then on, it's sort of game on. If you want to try sleep training and all of these things, there are millions of books you can buy that are supposedly to help you get your baby into a good sleep routine. By all means, give it a try, but only from about eight to ten weeks because otherwise uh, you're just fooling yourself, really. So, uh, yeah, it's just, you just have to live with it for the first couple of months when they're born. <coughs> 
Number two then about things that you can do. So number one is try and keep reasonably regular hours. Number two is about sleep routine. Now, again, we think of children immediately, don't we? And we think of how with our kids, we prepare them for sleep. So my son, who is six and a very energetic six-year-old, some of you will have heard me talk about him before. He has, I think, those of you who have heard me speak before, moved on from the lying on the floor and screaming phase. If anyone remembers that, it, was, it wasn't a thrilling phase for us as parents. And I think he might have moved on. But he still isn't very fond on sleeping. He feels that it's basically a large waste of time. And so for him, we have a really clear routine for going to bed still at the age of six, that he has a nice bath, he brushes his teeth, he's in his jammies, we do stories. It's very clear. He knows where he's going. And importantly, so does his brain. And what's interesting for us as adults is how sometimes we forget the importance of that routine. Now, people vary. Let me illustrate this, this for you. I want you to imagine a scene for me right now. Imagine that you are on holiday somewhere beautiful. You're in Spain or Portugal or Crete, somewhere really beautiful. And it's a really beautiful hot day. And you're really hot. In front of you, there is a beautiful swimming pool. Okay, can you see it in your mind's eye? It's one of those, those infinity pools that you see on the internet, but you never actually get to go to in real life. Yeah, it's one of those really nice pools. And you're about to get into that pool. Now, I will ask you a question. Are you going to ease yourself in gently in a gradual fashion, maybe splashing a little water to acclimatize yourself to the new temperature? Or are you, like my husband would, actually, I would be easing myself in gently, and my husband would run and dive bomb next to me, and I would then get splashed and shout at him. Which of those two people are you? Are you going to jump in, or are you going to ease yourself in? He's, okay, good. Oh, controversial. You can argue about it afterwards. The thing is, sleep is as big a change of state for your brain as doing that. So we're all sitting here awake now. If I measured your brain waves and then I measured them again when you are asleep, they are totally and utterly different states for your brain. The change is quite dramatic. And yet, most of us think that we can running jump and dive bomb into sleep just like that, straight away. That you can go from doing your accounts or, uh, watching, uh, or watching a movie or playing a video game or chatting or any of the things that you're doing that is about your brain being animated and awake and functioning and go to sleep just like that. Now, let me say there is some variation. So some of you will know some people who do go to sleep just like that. They're really annoying. I am married to one. So my husband is just literally, I'll be mid-sentence and I turn around and he's just laying down and gone to sleep. And he's actually, he's snoring already because he does snore. But there you go. I, however, have to ease myself into sleep. So I sleep really well, but I don't sleep well if what I do is I have to just get into bed and go to sleep right, right now, go to sleep. Because my brain takes some switching off. And most of us, research shows, would be more like that, more like I would be. It's quite unusual to be able to just switch off and go to sleep just like that. So the more you know that's you, the more important it is that you stick to that regular sleep routine, that you do things that tell your brain that it's preparing for sleep. So it might be about getting into your pajamas, having a warm drink. It might be about reading a good book. It might be about having a bath or a shower, something like that. It's the routine that makes it powerful more than actually what you're doing. Although, obviously, you don't want your routine to include something that's then going to make it harder to sleep. So don't have like a strong black coffee as part of your sleep routine. That's not going to help. But mostly, it's not so much what you do. It's the fact that you do it regularly. Those of you who travel, uh, a common issue with sleep is people who travel and then you can't sleep in the hotel room or whatever. I travel a lot, definitely have that problem. I would encourage you to think about things that you can make part of your routine that are portable so you can take them with you. So my sleep when I travel has improved so much since I started taking my pillow with me. Now, I know that seems really weird, but pillows are very variable, aren't they? Especially in cheap hotels, which I get to stay in a lot for part of my speaking. And um, 
the, the comfort and the security in your brain of, of something feeling natural and feeling like what you're used to, actually, it's surprising how much that helps you with sleep. So think about parts of your routine that you could take with you. Maybe it's, a, it's an aromatherapy spray or something that you can spray so that the space you're sleeping in smells familiar. Maybe it is about um, things that feel comfortable, feel familiar. Maybe it's about routines like reading, stuff like that. Things that you can do wherever you are. And the more you can use and manage those routines, the more it will help your sleep. So think about your sleep routine. Before I move on entirely from this thing about routine and the pattern of sleep, just two things that are worth mentioning. The first one is about daylight. So one of the things that we know is influential in your sleep-wake cycle is how exposed to sunlight you are. So... People who are in countries where there is a lot of sun tend to sleep better than people who are in countries where it's dark a lot of times. It's weird, isn't it? You'd think dark would be good for sleeping. But actually, at the times of year in countries where they don't get a lot of daylight and sunlight, sleep can be affected. Because sunlight, you have cells in the back of your eye that connect directly to that bit of the brain that is the ticking bit that controls your sleep-wake cycle. And so sunlight is about resetting it particularly. So if you have um, just traveled back, you have jet lag, for example, one of the things you can do that is most helpful is make sure that you expose yourself to sunlight. I mean, I don't mean sort of stand and gaze into the sun, hopefully that it will somehow magically sort your sleeping out. But the more you can in the daytime be out and about in the sunlight and at the nighttime be in the dark, the better. <coughs> Again, those of you with the babies who are desperately trying to get them to sleep, there is, again, some research that shows that the more that babies, once they're past that 8 to 10-week phase, the more they are exposed to, to daylight the, in the day, and the more it is dark at night, the better they sleep and the quicker their sleep-wake cycle settles. So you can try that. Again, the studies would say mostly summer babies quite, uh, sleep better, statistically speaking, than winter babies because they tend to be out for more walks in the daytime, exposed to more natural light. So that's something you can try, again, if you're struggling with the baby that refuses to sleep. So it's certainly something we did. If you're getting them up in the night, don't turn lights on. Don't expose them to light. Keep it quiet. It's, it's not about training them behaviorally. It's, it's literally about what's going on in their biology and their brain and trying to help their brain get the right sleep-wake cycle. The other thing that I'll mention just while I'm on this is about naps. Um, because people often say to me, well, you know, I'm, I'm really knackered and I'm not sleeping well. What about, can I take naps in the day? Is that okay or is it not? So some people will swear by naps. And there's good research that naps can be a bit of a lifesaver if you're not able to sleep a lot at night. So particularly if you have got small children or if you're shift working, something like that that's stopping you from sleeping as well as you'd like to at night. Naps can be brilliant. We know that a short nap can improve your alertness, can improve your creativity, um, even even naps as short as six minutes have been shown to have a good impact. So if you are, for example, driving a long journey and you are falling asleep and, and you've got to finish your journey, it's, it's really important, I would strongly advise you, pull over, take a nap. Even if it's just 10 minutes, the research would suggest that it will improve your alertness and your ability to safely finish your journey. We know, of course, that companies like Google have their little nap pods where people can go off in the working day and nap. And that's where that, that came from. I'm not sure that I'd want to encourage any of my team to be going off and napping in the daytime. I'm not, not that nice a psychologist. But there's good evidence that it, that it might be beneficial. The rule, though, is never nap for more than about 30 minutes. And, the, and the, the, biology, the biology behind that is that if you sleep for longer than 30 minutes, the risk is you're then going to go into a deeper sleep. And, and then you'll feel rubbish when you wake up because you won't have slept for long enough to be refreshed, but your brain will be wanting to stay asleep. And also the evidence is that there's a risk then that that nap might then have an influence on your ability to sleep well that evening. And that's about that natural sleep-wake cycle thing again. You're basically, you're confusing your brain. So take a nap if you're really tired, but um, much as it will be the last thing you feel like doing, set an alarm and um, prize yourself off the sofa after 30 minutes because otherwise the risk is that you're going to get into a cycle of sleeping at the wrong times of day. I would say that one thing we know about napping is that as we get older, most people sleep 
uh, pattern changes. And a lot of people, as they do get older, um, find that they sleep less at night and then they do have a longer nap in the day. And that's probably the exception to that rule. If it's part of your natural cycle, um, then, and, and obviously if your lifestyle at that stage means that you can do that, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, some other things to think about about routine then. Alcohol. Here's something associated with sleep that I often get asked questions about. So um, is alcohol a good thing or a bad thing for sleep? Well, there's an interesting question. We've all had a glass of wine at the end of a long day sometimes to switch off, to help relax. And there is evidence that if you've had a drink, you will fall asleep quicker. Um, what we also know, though, is that alcohol disrupts the normal patterns of sleep. So it changes the amount of time you spend in each phase of sleep. Particularly, it means that you dream more and you have less of the really deep, refreshing sleep. So a glass of wine is probably fine, but you wouldn't want to drink too much if you're really tired because the risk is, is although you might be in bed for eight hours, you actually haven't had a restful sleep. Not as restful as if you hadn't drunk. So... I would, I would advise quite a lot of caution where that's concerned, um, and I would avoid it becoming something that you use in order to sleep better. Much better to try something that isn't going to have the risk of impacting your sleep. Okay, let's look at number three then. We're, we're midway through sort of five things you can do to improve your sleep. And number three is about relaxation. It's about how we learn to relax which is harder than you might think, particularly if you are finding that life is throwing a lot at you, if you're quite tense, you're quite stressed. This is about learning how to switch off your brain. So how many of you find that the minute you lie down and go to sleep, suddenly your mind is buzzing? And that's the moment when you suddenly start to think of solutions to problems. You remember the things you didn't do at work that day. You're running through jobs, priorities, lists, all sorts of stuff. How many people find that happen? Yeah, quite. Now, do you know what that is sometimes? It's because you were so busy in the day that your brain couldn't get a word in edgeways. And you finally stopped doing something else. And it's like, oh, finally. Now I can tell you all the things I've been trying to tell you all day. So sometimes that's about finding some other slots in a very busy schedule. But life throws things at us sometimes, doesn't it? And sometimes that's the reality of life. So how do we switch off our brains? How do we relax our brains and bodies to sleep well? So the first thing I would say, just a practical tip, if you know you are a buzzy brain sort of person, there's a bit of personality variance here. Some people are much more, their brains are much more alert, much more switched on all the time. They're always thinking about something, always processing something. They tend to be natural warriors, um, but also very good details people. So my husband, the lawyer, uh, he's, he's, he's very much like this in terms of personality. It makes him a brilliant lawyer because he's, he's always spotting things and thinking about things and his brain is always ticking away. But he can be quite bad at not switching off very well at night. He has been known to sit up in bed at night worrying that he can't think what he should be worrying about. Some of you will know people like that. So if you know that's you, or if you just know that your brain is so full that it's coming up with stuff at the very time you're trying to switch it off, keep a notepad and pen by your bed. It's that simple. Then you can jot things down when they come to mind and you don't have to keep them. It's, it's that thing of going to the supermarket again. Remember when you go to the supermarket, you've got your list of things to remember and you have to keep saying them to yourself to keep them in your short-term memory. If you don't write something down, that's what your brain is doing with the thing that you just remembered. So when you're thinking, oh man, I must remember to make sure that I give my son his PE shoes tomorrow. And you think, good, I've thought of that. I'll remember it in the morning. No, your brain is still trying to keep that in short-term memory. The risk is that keeps you alert. If you write it down, you're saying to your brain, okay, you can now let this go. So keep a notepad by your bed. The second thing that you can do to help you relax and sleep better is about breathing. Now, breathing is one of the physiological things, the physical things that we can do that switches off our stress system and that drops your physiological level of stress. And there's some amazing research looking particularly at people who struggle with insomnia, who struggle at dropping off to sleep, showing the impact that good breathing can have on helping you relax and making it easier to drift into sleep. So I thought we might do a little breathing exercise. I've done it here before if you've heard me speak on stress, so you'll be old hats at this. 
Yeah, don't groan. It's a good thing to practice. Right, so we're going to sit up nice and straight. Can, can you um, get the other video on the screen for me? Now, if what this is about is about breathing. You can pop it on while I'm talking. It's not got any sound on it. It's about breathing nice and deeply. So you'll remember this from those of you who were here when I've spoken on stress. If you use this as a bit of a visual tool and breathe as you watch it, you can see how it sort of depicts your lungs opening properly. So you're breathing really nice and deeply. And something this simple just helps you to change your breathing pattern. Because when we're tense and stressed, our breathing becomes more shallow, more frequent. And sometimes just sitting and watching something like this for a few minutes can help us breathe better and drop those stress levels. Some of you are trying to breathe in sync with it now. I'll give you one more go before I carry on. Yeah. Anybody feeling more sleepy already? The other thing is something that's called, we can, you can leave that on, I think, I think it runs for a bit. If it starts playing an advert or something, then move off it. <laughs> but um, the other thing is something that's called 478 breathing, which I know I have talked about here before, which is to do with the, the, the balance between each phases of your breathing. And what you do with 478 breathing, and we'll have a go in a minute, is you're going to breathe in for a count of four. Then you're going to hold it for a count of seven. It's not a really long seven. Don't worry, nobody's died yet practicing this exercise. And then we're going to breathe out for a count of eight. But it's a gradual control breathing out. So imagine that you're blowing out candles on a really big birthday cake. So it's a really nice breathing out gradually. And what this does is it makes sure that all the good gas exchange and stuff can happen while you're holding your breath. And it just calms that breathing down. You're dropping your physiological stress level. So we're going to have a go. Let's take the video off because that's going to be distracting. You can blank screen me or something. And let's have a go. I will count. You guys do the breathing. You might want to put your hands on your rib cage to check that, like that video did, that you're breathing out to the full capacity. When we're tense, we breathe just with the top half of our lungs. You want to be breathing from the bottom so you're, if you have both hands on your ribs, they should be moving apart as you're breathing. Okay, so we're going to have a go. Are we ready? Yeah, okay. So I'm going to count to four. You're going to breathe in. Ready, steady, go. Two, three, four. And now you're going to hold it. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. And now out. Two, Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Good. How did that feel? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I would say to you is, this is not a breathing exercise that you do for half an hour. It's actually quite hard work, particularly if you are quite tense. But it's been shown to be very impactful if you're struggling to get to sleep. It's really good if you're a middle-of-the-night waker. And that's particularly challenging if your brain is very active because the minute you wake up, something's disturbed you or you've got to go for a pee or something, and then your brain's immediately awake and it's four in the morning. It's not actually getting up time. This is a great exercise to do in those moments. Usually about four or five breaths is enough to drop your stress level. I personally find, if I'm doing this, that I, I don't think I've ever really got past about four or five breaths because I tend to fall asleep. But there are studies that show this to be hugely impactful for people who are struggling to get back off to sleep. So give it a go. Sometimes the, the simplest things are the things that are most impactful. If nothing else, it'll give you something to do while you're trying to get to sleep. So look on the bright side. <laughs> Okay, number four, my most controversial of five. We can argue about this later. Um, and it is this, stop monitoring your sleep. Stop, just stop. I know there's an app on your phone that will tell you how you slept last night and draw you a little graph of it. Stop. I cannot tell you how much. Stop. All the research is that the minute you start monitoring your sleep, you will not sleep as well. All the research says that. So I know some of you will come and tell me afterwards, oh, my sleep's been fine. If it works for you, fine. But if you're struggling to sleep, it is unlikely that monitoring your sleep is going to do anything except make you feel even worse about how you slept last night. And you know you didn't sleep well. You don't need a graph to confirm it. Although if you've got a small child, I would say that putting that graph on Facebook gets you a lot of sympathy and offers of cake. So that's the only use I've ever seen for sleep monitoring apps. 
The other thing that we know psychologically is if, I, if you guys all went home and had a good night's sleep tonight and I told you I was monitoring your sleep and actually I was faking it and I then showed you a graph tomorrow that said you had a rubbish night, you would feel rubbish even though you actually slept quite well. And most of these apps are not very accurate. They're usually quite a pessimistic estimation of how well you slept. So we know that the impact on how you feel the next day is likely to be negative if you're monitoring your sleep with a sleep app. So I'm going to, I, I'm, that's all I'm going to say. I, I would suggest that they're not helpful. If you want to argue or just discuss on the way home what rubbish I taught, then fine. But the research is, is that they're not very helpful. Okay, and then number five is about what we call, psychologists call, practicing sleep hygiene. This is not about having a shower before you go to bed. This is about things that are not going to help your sleep. It's about cleaning up your sleep habits in a psychological way. And I want to suggest to you, therefore, three things that do not belong in your bed. This is not an adult conversation. This is just practical to improve your sleep. Number one is phones. Again, if there's one thing you could do tonight that statistically would probably improve your sleep, if any of you sleep with your phone plugged in next to you on your bedside table, I do, I have to admit, statistically it will improve your sleep if you leave it downstairs when you go to sleep. Why? Lots of debate. The likelihood of you using it is one thing. Um, the, the distraction, most, of the, most, most experts suggest it's because your brain just doesn't properly switch off. A phone is a very powerful device in terms of triggering an, a response from your brain. In fact, there are studies that show that the response to some things like social media pings on your phone are as powerful in terms of the neurotransmitter response as some drugs. So we know that a phone does trigger quite a strong response in your brain. Leaving it downstairs is statistically likely to help you sleep better. Plus, you won't get woken up by all your WhatsApp messages or whatever it is that, that your phone is doing at night. Number two, then, is any backlit device. This might be a phone. It could be a laptop. could be a reading thing that you're using, anything like that. This is because of those cells at the back of your eye that are linked to your sleep-wake cycle. And we know that backlit devices that you're reading from from shine a light straight onto those cells, particularly the ones that emit a sort of blue, that sort of bluish white light, so phones in particular, um, um, iPads, stuff like that. And again, the evidence would show fairly strongly if you're using those before you try and go to sleep, it increases how long it takes for you to drop off because your brain has been artificially told that it's daytime. So watch, watch out for those. Uh, most iPhones now have a thing where you can set the timer and it goes a kind of muddy yellow colour. Anyone got that on the phone yet? And that's why. It's to try and take the blue tone out of the light. I would say that's not, re that's not research tested, so we don't know yet if that actually does help, but it seems like a good idea, so that's what they put on when all the research came out saying that using your phone at night was bad for you because they want you to use your phone at night. But give it a go. But the most effective thing is not to do... The research would say... Stop using them for at least half an hour before you go to sleep. So put your phone down, leave it downstairs, come upstairs, do something else that doesn't involve backlit devices. Okay, number three is my other controversial thing of the night. You see, I've done this talk more than once, and I know what people argue with me about. Things that don't belong in your bed. Number three, pets. Yeah. Who has a dog or cat that sleeps? At, yeah, they have a, dogs. I know you love your pets, but dogs and cats don't sleep with the same pattern that you do. They don't have one long sleep. They quite often get up in the night. If they're anything like my cat, they constantly want feeding. The chances are they're not going to help you to sleep better. So I would suggest if you're struggling with sleep that maybe it's worth the dog or cat sleeping downstairs somewhere nice and cozy without you. But again, your decision. But we know that pets in bed statistically decreases your chances of having a good night's sleep. Okay, other things about sleep hygiene would suggest that the advice is to go to sleep when you feel tired. Again, that's about sticking with your daily rhythm. Now, I know for shift workers, that's the challenge. You, you can't have that regular rhythm. That's why shift work does have such an impact on sleep. But if you can, go to sleep when you're tired. If you can't sleep, get up. I know that feels totally counterproductive because how on earth are you going to get to sleep when you're sat downstairs having a warm drink? But we know that the more you lie there getting frustrated that you're still awake, 
the more you decrease your chance of getting off to sleep. And particularly, try not to do what I know everybody does, which is look at the clock. Oh, my goodness, it's another half hour and I'm still awake. And then you look again. Oh, now it's two o'clock. Everybody knows the, the place that you're most likely to sleep badly is when you go on holiday and there's a church, that, church clock that chimes. And anyway, we, we went on holiday for two weeks in the summer and there was a church clock that chimed all night. All night, my husband said indignantly after the first night. Earplugs can be a lifesaver in those moments. And the reason that's bad is because your brain's going, oh my goodness, now it's two o'clock and I'm still awake. Oh my goodness, now it's three o'clock and I'm still awake. And you just get more and more frustrated. So if you, are, if you can't sleep, get up, go and read or have a warm milky drink, something that might help you to feel sleepy and go back to sleep when you feel drowsy again. Okay, I'm nearly done. I just want two, two things to end on and then we'll have a quick break and then uh, maybe do some Q&A. The first one is just common questions. I'm really preempting them before you ask them. And the first one is, what about medication then? Um, if you're struggling with sleep, is it a good idea to take medication that you can get from the GP? So medication can be really helpful in certain circumstances, particularly if you're unwell or if your sleep is being dis disturbed by something to do with a medical condition, maybe a side effect of another medication. So if your GP is recommending a medication as part of an approach to tackling a sleep problem, then I would say work with them um, and they can be very helpful. Of course, they're not ideal. They mostly have side effects. You don't sleep as well when it's because of a medication as when it's natural sleep. They can make you feel drowsy in the day, things like that. But there are some medications, particularly those that are just things that help you relax, that can be really helpful as part of a, a, a sort of balanced, holistic approach to struggling with sleep. Also, there are some medications, if there are things keeping you awake, like chronic pain, which I would really suggest can transform people's lives. Because if you can sleep better and your pain isn't keeping you awake, you'll be able to cope much better with the pain in the day. They can be really impactful. So sometimes medication can be really helpful. What I would say is just to be wise about it. They, apart from those sorts of circumstances where there's a good medical reason, they're not a long-term solution to a sleep problem. So on the whole, you're better to look at other solutions and try and work on your sleep with those as much as possible. But sometimes sleep medications can be an absolute lifesaver. So don't, don't beat yourself up if you, if you do need to use them sometimes. There are things like melatonin. I mentioned melatonin. There are people who swear by that for dealing with jet lag. And there are other um, complementary therapies and things. Most of those are about trying to help you feel sleepy and relaxed when you're supposed to be sleeping. And um, some people find them tremendously helpful. So it's something, again, you can experiment with as part of a holistic approach to managing sleep. But the most important thing I would say to you about sleep is to watch your thinking. Be careful about how you're thinking about sleep. And we've just spent a whole evening talking about it, so we're all probably going to lie awake tonight thinking, gosh, am I asleep yet? Am I not? That video said if I didn't sleep for six hours, I was going to die. So <laughs> I have to sleep. So maybe, maybe do something to distract yourself when you get home. But watch your thinking. We know if there's one thing that's the most likely to interrupt your sleep, it is if you start to get stressed about whether you're sleeping or not. So the most, the most helpful thing you can do is try and relax about it. On the whole studies show where they monitor you with proper brain monitoring, not putting your iPhone under your pillow, that you probably slept better than you thought you did last night. Mostly when people do sleep studies and they say, I didn't sleep a wink. Actually, one of the really helpful things of a sleep study is that the doctor's able to sit down and say, well, actually, you did. You slept here and here and here. So it's not as bad as you thought. The thing that keeps us awake most is the panic and stress of thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm not sleeping. So the more you can relax, the better. I talk about um, emotional gardening as a way of weeding out thoughts in your mind that are unhelpful. And study after study after study will pick out key thoughts and patterns of thinking around sleep that are unhelpful. Beliefs like, I am just a poor sleeper, not generally helpful. Worrying thoughts, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow, not generally helpful. Thoughts around checking the clock, things, things like that that feed unhelpful thought patterns. We know that they are likely to influence your sleep. So if you know that, that those are the sorts of things you do and you know that has an impact and you can feel the dread and the panic the minute you're not asleep after half an hour of trying to be, then I would really encourage you to look into an approach that helps you look at your thinking around sleep. So there is a lot of good evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy around sleep. It's not a magic wand, 
but a lot of people do find it very helpful. Um, and looking at trying to get into that vicious cycle of poor sleep, where your negative thinking that triggers negative emotions like anxiety and panic, which then trigger behaviors that aren't helpful, like checking the clock and things like that. And you can so easily get caught in a cycle. The minute you try and think too much about sleep, it becomes harder. That's one of the strange things. So if you know that's you, I would encourage you to perhaps go and chat to your GP, think about, see if there's an opportunity for you to get some help with that stuff. So I'm going to finish. Um, what I'd like to just emphasize on as we finish then is that good sleepers on the whole are born, not made. Now, I know that some of you struggle with sleep and have told that you always did. As a baby, you never slept. As a child, you never slept. And there is some variance in how well we sleep. But there's lots that you can do to improve your sleep, to feel more in control of how well you sleep. The biggest problem is that we tend not to prioritize it. So did you know what the most common reason is that people didn't sleep very well last night? It's actually not to do with pets or kids or insomnia or pain or medical conditions. Do you know what the most common thing is in studies? It's procrastination. You didn't sleep well enough last night because you just didn't go to bed early enough. And that's the most common problem in healthy adults um, now in the 21st century is we don't sleep because we just don't sleep enough. And that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Turning off the TV, putting your phone away, prioritizing sleep and actually trying to set aside seven to eight hours every 24 to just sleep. So I would encourage you, prioritize it and work on it, and I hope that you will sleep better as a result. Great. I'm done.